So anyway, Luke tells us that Jesus um, had gone up to Capernaum from Nazareth. As I was saying, it's about a day's journey uh, northeast up to the north end of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is located right on the shore, and it's a fishing town. Um, there, archaeologists tell us, lived between 600 and 1,500 people. That seems like a big variation, but, you know, when you're counting ruins, <laughs> it's hard to estimate the exact number. But uh, some of the things that we know about Capernaum was that it was it, it was not a center uh, of the arts and uh, a fancy kind of uh, culture. Um, in fact, there were no significant public buildings in Capernaum. There weren't any libraries or theaters per se like existed in other towns of the area. Um, Capernaum was a fishing town and it was primarily populated by fishermen. And there was a synagogue there, obviously, and uh, yet the reputation of Capernaum was kind of rough and tumble. It was also on a um, trade route, and so it was a place where a lot of people were passing through. Uh, Jesus chose Capernaum to kind of be his headquarters. It was out of Capernaum that he conducted uh, the majority of his Galilean ministry. And he would go out and about and come back to that area. So Luke takes us to Capernaum. And he selects three events that happened uh, while Jesus was in Capernaum. These apparently occurred on one day. And it's kind of like a typical day in the life of Jesus. I mean, that, that's sort of the image that Luke is giving. And this is a Sabbath day. And sometimes we read the Bible and, and uh, you know, we treat it like it's some foreign literature. But this is about as normal a day as you can expect for any religiously oriented family. When I was growing up, you know, we would uh, get up on Sunday morning, we'd go to church, and when church was over, as often as not, we would head south to Sarasota to my grandmother's house where we would have lunch. And uh, then at the end of the day, you know, we would be finding our way back home. And so, uh, you know, a typical Sunday was uh, to, to go to worship together, then to have a big lunch with your family and uh, whatever in the afternoon. This was not unlike that. Jesus goes to the synagogue and he's teaching He's the guest speaker for the day, and he's planning to go back to Simon's home after uh, worship and have lunch and spend the afternoon. But that morning in synagogue, something happens that was quite unexpected. Jesus is teaching, and all of a sudden this guy interrupts the service. And it's not him talking. There's a demon inside of him, and the demon cries out, Ha! Who are you? What are you doing? Jesus, we know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Have you come to torment us? 
And in that exclamation, um, Jesus finds himself dealing directly with a demonic spirit in the middle of the service. And I, I, I kind of get in some ways that this is almost without missing a beat, except it obviously took some time. But Jesus stops and he looks at this man who has the demon and he says not to the man but to the demon, be quiet and come out of him. And all of a sudden the man is thrown to the floor in a convulsion. It doesn't say that in Luke, but you've got to read the other parallel accounts. And he's thrown to the floor in this convulsion, and then the next thing you know, um, this man is normal. And he's not hurt. And boy, as soon as synagogue is over, the word is out. Jesus is really powerful. He did not use any formulas. He didn't go through any exorcistic rituals. Um, he didn't uh, follow any special incantations. He just looked at this spirit and spoke authoritatively, and the spirit left the man. And it was like, wow, this is amazing. And so after synagogue, Jesus goes to Simon's home. They're going to have lunch together. Meanwhile, everybody else is talking. Did, did you know what happened in church this morning? Can't you imagine if you know something like that happened at church? Don't you think the news had spread? What would you all be talking about? <laughs> Do I? <laughs> Paul was preaching, and, and this guy gets up in the middle of the service, and wow, it was amazing. And so uh, that's what happens. Meanwhile, lunch plans get changed. They get to Simon's house and find out his mother-in-law has been taken with a fever. Now, the, the implication here is that she came down sick suddenly, but quite violently, that the sickness is very severe, and the fever is high, and uh, when he gets to the house, you know, they kind of come and say, Jesus, here's the situation, uh, you know, can, can you do something here? And the Bible says he goes in to where she's laying and he bends over her and he rebukes the fever and reaches down, the other gospel writers tell us, and takes her by the hand and lifts her up. And she began to help serve them. Now, you know how you feel after you've had a really bad flu, right? You know, you've had fever, you're dehydrated, you can kind of tell that the bug is left, but, oh man, you are just worn out. This woman is instantly raised up with no effect from the sickness. She has not one symptom left. She's full of energy. She's like completely restored. <clears throat> so much that she wants to go help continue preparing the lunch and begins to fix for them so then Luke tells us at the end of the day as the sun was going down everybody in town starts making their way to Simon's house now do you ever wonder 
why the end of the day? I mean, you know, they didn't have street lights and automobiles, and here they are coming at dark. But remember, it was a Sabbath. And remember that the Jewish day begins at sundown and ends the next day at sundown. So the day is from sundown to sundown. And the Sabbath ends as soon as the sun drops below the horizon. And they're not going to make these extra journeys and these extra trips on the Sabbath because they're very concerned about that. But as soon as Sabbath is over, the town basically shows up at Simon's house. And the scripture says Jesus laid his hands on the sick and those who had demonic problems, he, he heals and uh, delivers and casts the demons out and the sick are healed and all kinds of amazing things take place and it's just wonderful. Again, the other gospel writers tell us no one was left out. He healed everyone that was brought to him. Or if their problem was demonic, he cast out the demons. And then by daybreak, took all night to see the crowd. By daybreak, Jesus is headed out to a secluded place. And his intention is to leave that area and go and preach the gospel elsewhere. Luke tells us that the people came out and started looking for him. And when they found him, they said, you've got to stay, you can't go. Uh, who wants to give up somebody like Jesus? Now, it sounds very noble, except really what they wanted was their own personal genie to hang out. You know, every time we're sick, we can come to you. It's free medical care. Every time we've got a psychological problem, we can come to you and get rid of the demons. Uh, you, can, you can feed us. You can, wow, you're fantastic to have around. The truth of the matter is there wasn't a whole lot of difference between the people in Capernaum and the people in Nazareth. They both wanted Jesus to hang in there for their own personal reasons. How do I know that? Well, later on in the Gospels, Jesus doesn't have very good things to say about Capernaum. They really never truly believed the message. They just liked the fringe benefits. And Jesus said in Capernaum, if the works that had, if others had seen the works that you have seen, they would have repented long ago. Uh, but as for you, judgment awaits. Because there was no real heartfelt belief in their lives. As we think about these events that Luke has recorded here for us, the question that I have is, what practical benefit is this? What can we learn from it? What teaching is there that we can take away from this passage that will help us right now. And one of the things that is all through the passage is the doctrine of demonology. That's the study of demons. And in church history, and I'm talking about recent church history, last 150 years or so, when you start talking about demons, there are all kinds of opinions 
those outside of the evangelical or fundamental faith, I'm going to call them the liberal element, flat out deny the existence of demons. In fact, most of them deny the existence of a personal devil. Um, they're theists in the sense that they believe there's a God, but they deny a good deal of the scripture, including most of the supernatural. And uh, they relegate these kinds of passages to mythology. Uh, this is just stories that kind of came up around Jesus, uh, guided by the superstition and, and beliefs of people of the time, and uh, never really happened. Others, and I'm afraid that today evangelicals are in this camp a certain percentage, buy into a theory called accommodation. And what that means basically is that Jesus, as the Son of God, knew better but he accommodated himself to the superstition of the day. In other words, the people believed in demons, and they believed that these psychological problems were really demonic problems. We know better now. We know that they're really psychological problems, mental illness. We're more uh, knowledgeable and sophisticated and educated and and we recognize that people have um, chemical problems and imbalances and whatever, and, and that's what causes these psychological issues. And, uh, but they didn't know that in the first century, and, and they looked at strange behavior, and they thought it was demonic. And so Jesus, not wanting to uh, confuse them, kind of adopted their thinking. That's accommodation. He bent his teaching to their ideas. I find more and more people that even come for interviews to be uh, licensed for ministry are believing in one form or another of accommodation that Jesus accommodated himself to the naive assumptions of creation, that he accommodated himself to some of the naive assumptions of the Old Testament, that he basically uh, fit into the framework of thinking of the superstitions and um, ignorance of the first century people. That's really very scary because not only does it deny the scriptures, but it makes Jesus willingly a party to a lie. Because if he knows the truth and he doesn't acknowledge their error, but plays along with it, he's lying. They're foolish and he's a liar. And you can't go there as far as I'm concerned. I don't think there's any accommodation at all going on there. But even of more concern, if we rule out liberalism and, and a denial of the supernatural, 
And we are among those who say, no, 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 the scriptures are literally true. Um, We don't believe that Jesus accommodated himself. The truth is that the church in the West, and I identify Western rationalism as the basis of this, because it's not true around the world, but it is true here. The church has functionally denied the supernatural element of what's going on. I was interested to hear an ad the other day. It it was on um, one of the Christian radio stations. And uh, the advertisement was for a, a shelter and a ministry for human trafficking and uh, young girls who have been abused. And in the course of explaining their ministry, uh, the person giving the announcement uh, made this statement. And we have uh, also consulted with many professionals in order to provide the best kind of care. And I thought that was kind of a curious statement that in order to have a valid ministry, we have to consult with many professionals who can bring their expertise to bear. What is a professional? You know, is it someone who has a corner on truth? Or is it someone who has been through a sequence of prescribed courses and training, passed a test, and been given a license? The fact that you have a license or a degree doesn't mean you know anything. It just means you have a license or a degree. I'm not trying to be undermining here or cruel in any way. But I'm saying that when we come face to face with Scripture, we need to recognize that Scripture trumps everything. Here is the truth. And we need to have the discernment to interpret it that way. The other day, uh, John got home from work and he came down to my study area and pulled a book off the shelf. And it was by Clyde Naramore, the, the... Encyclopedia of Psychological Problems. I think it was printed in the late 1960s or maybe 1970, somewhere along in there, way back when, you know, in the dark era. And uh, he started thumbing through there and, and reading some things to me, and I was interested on in his take on it that... Um, with a gap of 40 years and, and having come up in today's generation, it's like, wow, this book is really outmoded because so many things that were called uh, psychological problems 40 years ago are normal behavior today. They're just an, an alternate lifestyle. Now, I'm not suggesting John knows this, that, that he was agreeing with today's viewpoint, but it's interesting that the books have actually changed with people, that as our culture has disintegrated further in moral decline, we simply keep rewriting the books so that we can normalize what used to be deviant behavior. 
And, and we can make it an alternative choice when it used to be a mental illness. <laughs> they even changed the, diagnose, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders to keep up with the times. You know, um, multiple sclerosis is still multiple sclerosis. It has been ever since it was discovered. Cancer is still cancer. Hypertension is still hypertension. Diabetes is still diabetes. But when you come to moral behaviors, we keep changing the books because we don't like the application. And God forbid that anyone would suggest there are actually demons behind it. It's just a psychological issue. Friends, the church has bought into this thinking with the consequence that we professionalize people and we drug them and we counsel them and we coddle them, but we never confront them. And we never confront the fact that they may in fact be demonized and need deliverance and need repentance and need to clean out their lives and let the Holy Spirit take control. There is hope in the name of Jesus. Another thing that stands out in this passage to me is that demons know the truth and they're pretty well versed in eschatology, (laughs) the doctrine of last things. You notice, have you come to torment us in other places, the scripture says, before the time. The demonic spirits knew who he was. The interesting thing about that is, is that um, the disciples didn't know who he was yet. The people didn't know who he was. Mary knew, but sometimes it's almost like she's being influenced by her family. But the demons clearly know. You're the Holy One of God. You're the Son of God. We know you. And judgment is not right now. What are you doing here? They're obviously not omniscient either. Some people get all concerned about that. Uh, Demons don't know everything. The guy with the demon in the synagogue, apparently the demon did not know when it started, who Jesus was. Until he started talking. And then it's like there was an epiphany. (laughs) If a demon can have an epiphany. You know, uh, the the literal exclamation in the Greek is, Ha! (laughs) Oh my goodness! (laughs) Who are you? You're Jesus! What are you doing here? What are we doing with each other? This is not the time. I've still got some work to do. This is the demon speaking. And Jesus just simply says, be quiet and come out of him. And when he says that, this guy is kind of thrown to the floor, but some people kind of connect that with being thrown at Jesus' feet like, oh, all right, here he is. And they left the, the, the demon left the man. 
They knew him. They recognized his authority. And friends, the church still has that authority. Jesus said, I give this to you. In my name, you will cast out demons. In my name, you will heal the sick. The powerful name of Jesus is still the same yesterday, today, and forever. The third question I want to touch on here is the question people often ask me, can Christians be demonized? Notice that this guy was in the synagogue. And the closest that we can come to the church before the day of Pentecost is faithful Israelites attending worship and practicing in the life of Israel. This guy's in the synagogue. Another case, the woman who had a demon is called a daughter of Abraham, a faithful one. Now, if someone asks the question, can a Christian have a demon? And what they are asking is, can a Christian be possessed? And the problem that I have with that word is, the King James Version has given us an unfortunate translation. The Greek New Testament never uses that word, possessed, in terms of demonization. But the King James Bible translated that, and so we seem to have locked in our brains demon-possessed. So if you're asking, can a Christian be possessed by a demon, as in totally controlled, totally owned, totally uh, influenced, and completely uh, under uh, the, the power and authority of a demonic spirit, the answer is no. A Christian cannot be possessed in that sense. But that's not the term the scripture actually uses. There are two terms in the New Testament regarding demonization. Either the person was demonized or the person has a demon. And if you want to know if a Christian can have a demon, the answer is yes. A Christian can have a demon. We want to think of these things as spatial, not special. I'm not speaking southern now. Spatial, as in occupying space. We want to think of our bodies as a container, like a glass. And when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we're, you know, kind of with a pitcher of Holy Spirit, we're poured into until we're filled up. That's not what the word filled with the Spirit means. Filled with the Spirit means under the influence, under the control, under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be drunk with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean? It means under the influence of the Spirit. And the reality is that a demonic spirit can also bring influence into the life of a believer. Some people raise a question and say, how can, how can the devil dwell in the same place as God? Well, is the devil in the universe? Where is he in the universe? According to Revelation, he is before the throne of God, accusing us day and night. I would say that's dwelling where God is. 
He doesn't threaten God just because he exists in the same universe or even in the same place in the universe. And a demon does not possess a person just because they have influence. How is it that a Christian gets demonized? Well, you have to let them in. They don't jump on you from the bushes. They won't land on you as you're going to your car in the parking lot. You have to give them entrance. They entice you. They tempt you. And you give in. Oops. And then they tempt you again. And you give in again. And then they tempt you some more in the same place, same area. And you keep yielding. And then one day you wake up and say, what's happened to me? This thing in my life has a grip on me. It's, it's got a hold of me. And then you wake up one day and say, I hate this thing and I can't stop. And then you find that you have yielded an area of your life to the influence of demonic spirits who now lay claim on the basis of your sin. That's why Paul writes to the Ephesians and he says, get angry, get angry with sin and stop sinning and stop giving the devil a place in your life. Don't ever let the sun Go down and cool off on your anger towards sin. Stay at a fever pitch. Because if you don't, and you give in and slack off, and one day you're going to find yourself under the influence of some spirit that has gained real estate in your life. The word in Greek is topos, a place in your life. And as soon as that happens, you have a demon. And the only way out of that is repentance and turning away and coming back to the cross and seeking cleansing and taking back the ground and yielding it to the Holy Spirit And you may even need to get other people to pray with you to sever the bondage. It's not that you're controlled in every dimension. It's that something has a grip in your life because you let it in the door. And it's time to drive it away and slam the door shut and be filled with the Spirit. And then Jesus heals the sick. He heals Simon's mother-in-law. It's interesting that he rebukes the fever. Uh, Some people have erroneously concluded from this that all illness is also demonic. That's not true. Uh, All illness is not demonic. Um, But Jesus can rebuke a fever just like he rebukes the wind and the waves. All illness does have sin at its root. 
Every sickness on the planet is caused by sin. Not necessarily your sin. You may not be sick because you've sinned. Well, you have sinned, but your sickness may not be because of some sin. But you are sick because Adam and Eve sinned. And they messed the whole place up. And disease is present, resulting ultimately in death in a world that was never supposed to be subject. And when the kingdom of light invades the kingdom of darkness to bring the glory of the gospel, eventually sickness must be confronted. And in the case of Peter's mother-in-law, Jesus rebukes the fever. This fever took hold of her uh, possibly even that morning. And he is going to their house for lunch, and here's this fever in control, and he rebukes the sickness, not necessarily a demon. I've prayed with a number of people who will pray, I rebuke this infirmity in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's entirely acceptable. It is interesting later in this passage that we find that Jesus lays his hand on those who are sick to heal them, as if to transmit the power of God for life into their bodies. But he does not lay his hand on those who are demonized. He commands the demons to leave by his authority. We need to be careful not to say more than the Scripture says and not to say less, but to recognize only what the Scripture says. Confronting the kingdom of darkness and establishing God's kingdom includes divine healing, both as an authentication of the gospel message and as the children's bread, as Keith Bailey wrote a book to that effect, and Jesus uh, said that to the woman of another nationality. This is the children's bread. This is for the church. Healing goes with the gospel. So what can we take away from this? Well, the first thing I think is that the people of Capernaum kind of wanted to hang on to Jesus as their personal genie. Wouldn't it be nice to just have a God hanging around that you could just kind of rub every once in a while and it would take away all your problems? That's what the people in Capernaum wanted. They didn't want to yield to him. They didn't want to submit to his lordship. They didn't want to be under his authority. They just wanted to have all their problems solved. Sometimes I think Christians are in that camp. Only you know for sure if you're one of them, but some people just want to have their problems solved without having God's interest at heart, without having the bigger picture, without wanting to be a part of the spreading of the kingdom. There will come a day when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord, 
There will come a day when the demons are locked away and when there's no more sickness and no more death and we will reign with him forever and ever. There will come that day. Now is the time to proclaim the good news. It's a battle. It's a war. Do we have the right motivation in following Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior? The other thing that I take away from this is Jesus said these signs will follow those who believe. They will cast out demons. They will heal the sick. They will be impervious virtually to snake bites and poisons and they will preach the gospel all over the planet in my name. You know, this kind of power is being seen in other countries of the world. It's not being seen so much in Western countries. Not because we're smarter than the rest of the world, but because we're dumber when it comes to faith. Because we have backslidden. Because we are anemic in our convictions. And because we don't believe. And we need to seek God for revival. We need to be renewed. The same powerful demonstration of the Spirit of God authenticates the gospel message today just like it did 2,000 years ago. Paul said, when I came to you, to the Corinthians, I did not come with persuasive words of man's wisdom, uh, nor did I come to you with glowing speech and fancy rhetoric, but I came to you in demonstration of the Spirit and power that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I think sometimes we are guilty of proclaiming the gospel in the wisdom of men without the power of God. And it is not transformational. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if we don't see it, don't be among the crowd that says, ah, well, that happened back in that time. Be among those who say, oh, Lord, do it again. Do it again. Thank you, Father, for your word to us this morning. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming. I thought about that story as we listened to the scripture read about the widow from Nain whose only child had died, only son, and she was a widow. She not only lost her beloved son, but all hope for care and provision, destitute, grieving, and alone. Your heart was moved with compassion as you stopped the funeral possession, procession and you went up to the casket and took the young man by the hand and raised him up and gave him back to his mother. That's your heart, Lord. Thank you so much for revealing to us your character. Give us the grace and the courage to proclaim your love 
in demonstration of the Spirit and power. In Jesus' name, amen.